This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You're listening to the CBS Sunday Morning Podcast on Play.it, brought to you by the new film Trumbo. Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. We're slowly learning more about the young couple who killed 14 people and wounded 21 others in San Bernardino, California, this past week. Lee Cowan will bring us up to date in just a few minutes. And then it's on to the art world calls it the heist of the century. Works by Rembrandt, Vermeer, and others, stolen from one of America's finest museums. Years later, it remains an unsolved mystery, investigated this morning by Erin Moriarty. More than 25 years ago, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston was left with 13 empty spaces after two brazen thieves walked out with half a billion dollars worth of art and then vanished. They woke up the next morning after the Gardner heist, I believe, unwittingly realizing that they'd just committed the heist of the century. How you can help solve one of the greatest mysteries in the art world and put paintings back where they belong later on Sunday morning. Introducing Brie Larson. 
She's a young actress who some say could be in line for Hollywood's foremost honor. She'll be talking with our Tracy Smith. Just how good is Brie Larson in the movie Room? I'm scared. I know. Critics say her performance is what Oscar dreams are made of. Do you allow yourself to think about that? I can't. Isn't it sort of like, like planning your fantasy wedding when you don't even have a boyfriend? Brie Larson, the unassuming movie star. Later on Sunday morning. Violins of Hope is a story of remembrance that crosses the decades. To be told this morning by Serena Altschul. Israeli violin maker Amnon Weinstein has collected and restored dozens of violins that survived the Holocaust. You know, a violin is nothing. It's 300 grams of wood. And yet? And yet, he was a fighter. When you listen to them this Sunday morning, you might just hear the voices of those who were silenced so many years ago. Ahead, the violins of hope. Those stories and more, but first... Aftermath. Based on the true story... Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere. Thanksgiving. We begin this Sunday with the pictures of 14 people, victims of Wednesday's shootings in San Bernardino. There are, of course, more than just faces. They had families, friends, lives. The investigation goes on, as does the morning. Here's Lee Cowan. By the time the last shots rang out in San Bernardino on Wednesday, it had been decided how an unfortunate number of innocent families were going to be spending the holidays, grieving for losses no one could or should understand, let alone tolerate. I pray you'll be Yet, here we are again, searching for answers when even the questions seem abhorrent in their familiarity. The answer? unsettling as it may be in this case, seems for the moment to be pointing in one direction. We are now investigating these horrific acts as an act of terrorism. This time the alleged murderers were a young couple, newly married with a new baby. The target, the husband's co-workers at a holiday gathering, some sending out frantic text messages. Pray for us. I am locked in an office. That's it. Their killings took just minutes. Hours later, they would be dead too. Saeed Farouk and his wife, Tashfeen Malik, shot to death in their rented getaway car. Among their victims, Michael Wetzel, father of six, Daniel Kaufman, who ran a coffee shop, and Nicholas Thalassinos, who leaves behind his wife. Just my whole 
life has been basically turned upside down. He's just had an enormous heart. At first, it seemed like a workplace shooting. But then came the discovery the killers had left behind a bomb. It didn't go off. But back at the couple's home, investigators found more guns and more bombs. Just what were they up to? Clearly, they were equipped and they could have continued to, to do another attack. Um, we intercepted them before that happened, obviously. Saeed Farouk, a U.S. citizen, was not on any watch lists, although he had been in contact with at least one person of interest to the FBI. His Pakistani-born wife, Tashfeen Malik, who had come to the U.S. from Saudi Arabia on a fiancé visa, took to Facebook to pledge her allegiance to the leader of ISIS just before Wednesday's massacre. FBI Director James Comey. Um, there is much about this that doesn't make sense to even uh, for even those of us who do this for a living. To have all this extensive planning and then use it for the holiday party of the co-workers is the odd part of this case. Jeffrey Simon, an expert on terrorism and political violence, wonders, like the rest of us, will we ever really feel safe? Every time we think we have it down pat in terms of who may be the type of terrorist who may be likely uh, suspects, you can get these things out of left field, a husband and wife team. It's, of course, not the first time a family has conspired against innocence. It was two brothers, after all, who planned the terrorist bombings at the Boston Marathon more than two years ago. But it's the frequency of mass casualty attacks, inspired by terrorism or not, that has left us all on edge. It's a dreadful calendar of violence. In fact, by one count, there have been 353 mass shootings in the U.S. this year with four or more victims. On average, that's more than one a day. We should never think that uh, this is uh, something that just happens in the ordinary course of events, because it doesn't happen uh, with the same frequency in other countries. Historian Walter Isaacson worries not just about more attacks, but how it stains the welcome mat this country has so often laid out. I think a lot of things are being endangered by this event, and one of them is our basic and fundamental creed that we're an inclusive nation. Racial and religious prejudice is nothing new in America. But on the positive side, Isaacson says we've usually found our footing. I think we're in a very dangerous time, but I think we've gone through everything from civil rights movements to civil wars where there was a lot of unrest, where there were church bombings, where there were shootings and lynchings. I think that we have to not overreact and we have to say, if we stick to the fundamental values embedded in our Constitution and the DNA of our nation, we're not going to let these things unravel who we are. Perhaps we're not unraveled, but the country is frayed and divided over just what to do. Guns are a constant. In fact, holiday shoppers bought a record number of them this past Black Friday. From the mountains to the prairies to the The procession of grief is almost guaranteed to continue. More funerals, more candlelight vigils. But perhaps most unsettling is there's an alarming sameness to it all when these dreadful events should be the horrific exception.
based on the true story. Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere. Thanksgiving. The violins of hope that we're about to hear, as Serena also now explains, are from a time and a place where hope seemed to be all but lost. Hi. Where is mine? That's not it. When members of the Cleveland Orchestra recently sat down to perform, they faced a daunting task. It bounces off. Yeah. This would be no ordinary concert. It would take place in an historic synagogue, and it would be played on instruments that had rarely been touched in more than 70 years. It's beautiful. Thank you. The goal was not to just make beautiful music, but to give voice to millions who were silenced in one of humanity's darkest chapters. It's for music, it's for violin, it's for survivors, it's for the Holocaust. The concert was the culmination of decades of work by Israeli craftsman Amnon Weinstein. Weinstein is a second-generation luthier, a builder of stringed instruments. His father escaped Europe before World War II, but the rest of the family perished. It's going to be a very good-sounding instrument. To honor their memory and those of everyone who died in the Holocaust, he and his son have collected and restored dozens of instruments that survived. I had a guy who came over to me. He played on the way to the guest chamber, and he gave me his violin. He wanted to restore it. And when I opened the violin, there was black powder inside. Mm. That for me, this is, it's coming only from one place. Yeah. This one was played in the orchestra of Auschwitz. Many of the instruments in Weinstein's collection, like this one, were used in concentration camp orchestras organized by the Nazis. And before the orchestra, in front of them, there was a pile oh. of all these dead, dead people. And yet they played. And yet they played. So the moment that the war was finished, they never touched the instrument again, most of them. In the camps, the violin could also be an instrument of defiance. It was forbidden to the Jewish to pray, and the violin was praying for them. So it's sacred as yeah. well. And to be out of this horrible place for five minutes, you know the value of that? Yeah. For five minutes in the free world. Some people say that always when he played the violin, he was in a concert hall. Yeah. You open the door, you see the barbed wire. Transports you somewhere else. Completely. The power of music. That's the power of music. Music is deeply rooted in Jewish tradition. Persecuted throughout European history, Jews were often on the move in search of a safe place. 
music became a refuge and a source of joy. Have you seen Chagall painting? This was a part of the culture. It was a cheap instrument. Everybody could afford it. And uh, always when people asked Isaac Stern why so many Jewish people are playing the violin, his answer was very simple. It is the easiest instrument to pick it up and to run away. Besides portability, the violin has another unique quality. Its design originated in 16th century Italy, where it was created to emulate the range of the female soprano voice. So it was no accident that when the Cleveland Orchestra performed, guest soloist Shlomo Mintz played notes that literally cried out for the silenced. instrument becomes part of the person which plays it. It's the voice of that person comes through the instruments. And just knowing that some of these people who have owned these instruments did not survive, but their personality is still within these instruments, I find that uh, very moving. Franz Welser Most conducts the Cleveland Orchestra. He and violinist Peter Otto were keenly aware of the history of the instruments. What happens to an instrument if it isn't played? After a while, it just loses the sound. It sounds tight. It, it just loses its spirit, so to speak. So an instrument that's well played and loved and used sounds richer. It sounds richer. It sounds more open. Mm -hmm. It's it's like a really good singer singing freely and using everything they got, you know, in their body. I can only suspect what this violin would sound like if it was played for let's say a year every day which is why a museum display of Weinstein's instruments called the Violins of Hope at Cleveland's Maltz Museum of Jewish Heritage includes regular performances. When Amnon created the Violins of Hope, it wasn't to put them on a table and have somebody look at them. It was that they had to be played because that's the only way the voices of the voiceless could be heard. Richard Bogomolny and Milton Maltz are the driving forces behind the exhibit and concert. Welcome to this historic occasion. How did it feel to be in that incredible space and have this project finally come together? Well, I'm fairly short. I'm about five foot five. It felt like I was 10 feet tall. The audience was uplifted as well. The violins of hope were no longer silent. Violin is talking. Violin is singing. And if you have a good way to listen, you can listen to all the stories. Ahead, 
the tale of the Mont Blanc. Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. December 6th, 1917, 98 years ago today. The day an immense explosion wiped out much of the port city of Halifax, Nova Scotia. The Mont Blanc, a French ship carrying tons of munitions bound for the Allies during World War I, had collided with a relief ship. The crash triggered a fire and then a mammoth explosion, the biggest human-caused explosion of the pre-nuclear era. The explosion and its shockwave killed more than 1,800 people and injured another 9,000. More than 1,600 homes were destroyed, leaving thousands of people homeless just before Christmas. As for the Mont Blanc, it was blown to bits. A half-ton portion of its anchor was later found two miles away. Emergency aid for the victims quickly poured into the wounded city, particularly from Massachusetts, which sent doctors and an entire warehouse full of relief supplies. Halifax has long since been rebuilt, but memories of the disaster are still fresh. That recovered anchor part is the centerpiece of a monument to the Mont Blanc. And to this day, Nova Scotia sends a Christmas tree to the city of Boston as a thank you gift for the help that was offered in Halifax's hour of need. This year's tree was lit on Boston Common just this past Thursday night. Rumors ran wild in the wake of the explosion of the Mont Blanc, among them that it had been the work of German saboteurs. But Allied and German military records both showed that there were no German spies operating in Halifax. It was the heist of the century, the 20th century, creating a mystery that lingers into the 21st. Aaron Moriarty of 48 Hours tells the tale. Entering the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston is like taking a step back in time. The lavish courtyard and art-filled rooms designed by its namesake and founder remain much as she left them a century ago except for 13 empty spaces. When you walk by here, I mean, you have all of these wonderful pieces, yes. and then you see this empty panel. It, it makes me want to weep. It's time to bring them back. The FBI tonight is looking for two thieves who made off with a motherload of art treasure from a Boston museum overnight. On March 18, 1990, Anne Holly received news no museum director wants to hear. I think it was around 8 o'clock in the morning. I was called by the security director here. He, he told me there had been a theft. Did you have any idea of how big a theft it no. would turn out to be? No, no, not until I got into the room. Earlier that morning at 1.24 a.m., two men dressed as police officers 
arrived at the museum's employee entrance. The guard answered the buzzer, and uh, the thieves said, Boston police were responding to a disturbance. And based on that alone, the guard buzzed them into the building. The current museum security chief, Anthony Amore, describes what happened next. The two phony police officers said, gentlemen, this is a robbery. The night watchman who let them in, Rick Abbott, was tied up in the basement along with another guard. 81 minutes later, the thieves had pulled off the priciest art heist in history, walking out with an estimated half a billion dollars worth of art. Oh, it was devastating. I say it's like having a death in the family. I mean, these works are so important. Gone, the only known seascape painted by Rembrandt. And it had such motion in it. It's uh, the turbulence of the sea and the movement of the ship were so uh, agitated and so strong that you, you, it, it just drew you towards it. Gone, Rembrandt's A Lady and Gentleman in Black, as well as a self-portrait etching. I think that they were targeting Rembrandt's, um, and then they decided to, to just take some other things. The thieves may have thought landscape with an obelisk was also a Rembrandt. It was actually painted by one of his students, but they took it anyway. Also gone, five works by Degas. Manet's Chez Tortoni, an ancient Chinese beaker, and a Napoleonic flag finial. But the most heartbreaking loss for Holly was a painting by Vermeer, one of only 36 in existence. This was Vermeer's The Concert, and Gardner set it up so you could sit in this chair and just contemplate the picture. The thieves appeared to know nothing about art, leaving behind more valuable pieces and using box cutters to remove paintings from frames. The thieves pulled them off the wall, shattered the glass, and cut the paintings out. So this is one of the paintings yes. that had actually been right. cut out of cut the frame. Out. FBI Special Agent Jeff Kelly. These guys were burglars. They would have just as easily stolen a car or stolen somebody's TV. They didn't know what they were doing. Uh, these were not sophisticated art thieves. Uh, they woke up the next morning after the Gardner heist, I believe, unwittingly realizing that they'd just committed the heist of the century. But apparently, they were smart enough. More than 25 years later, no arrests have been made, and none of the art has been recovered. When people say, well, why, why is it so important? I said, well, you know, imagine if you could never hear Beethoven's Seventh Symphony again, ever. Uh, well, our Vermeer is certainly at that level of creation, and so is this, the Storm in the Sea of Galilee. I mean, these works are major, iconic works of Western culture, and to have them removed, just rent uh, from the culture, is a crime. It's really a crime against civilization. Since 2002, Special Agent Kelly has run the FBI task force that continues to search for the art. There's nothing like it. There's nothing that compares to a group of individuals bluffing their way into a museum by posing as police officers, spending 81 minutes inside the museum with a comfort level that's unheard of, taking their time, being deliberate, and disappearing into the night. These thieves definitely had inside information. 
Which brings us back to the security guard who let the thieves in, Rick Abbott. If the police come to your facility and ask for admission and you haven't called for them, you then call the police and check if they were actually deployed there. And he didn't do it? No. Abbott, then a 23-year-old musician moonlighting as a guard, quickly fell under suspicion, especially after investigators discovered something perplexing in one of the galleries called the Blue Room. This is where the biggest mystery is, right? Yes. Did the thieves come in here? Well, at some point in the evening, somebody came in here and stole a painting off of our wall. Manet's Shea Tortoni was the painting taken from the Blue Room. The problem is, the museum's motion detectors tracked no movement at all in that room during the entire 81-minute heist. At no time between 1.24 a.m. and 2.45 a.m. did any alarm uh, on this floor even get tripped. The only person who had been in the room that night was Rick Abbott when he made his nightly rounds. Someone in, went in that blue room that night, and the only one that went in that room that night was the security guard, according to the motion sensor printouts. So, Jeff, doesn't that mean he had to have been involved in this? It's one of the aspects of this case that we continue to investigate. But he's never been arrested? No. Abbott has always denied he had anything to do with the robbery. Now, is it possible he assisted without knowing he did? That he was just a talker and gave all that information? Oh, that's definitely possible, too. It's quite possible that somebody was just talking at a party or at a bar at a turn, and someone took note of what they were saying. But just this summer, a video was released by the Justice Department that raises even more questions about the former security guard. Surveillance footage appears to show Abbott just 24 hours before the heist, allowing an unidentified man to enter the closed museum. Was this a trial run? Rick Abbott now lives a quiet life in Vermont. We went there hoping he might be willing to talk about that video. Hi. Oh, hi, Rick. I'm Aaron Moriarty with CBS News, Sunday morning. He wasn't. But the fact is, even if he was involved in the robbery, he can't be prosecuted. The statute of limitations has run out. If somebody was involved in the original theft of the paintings, they could not be charged for it. And as far as possessing it, uh, if they came forward and wanted to return them, they would not be arrested. You just want the art back. We just want the art back. But where is it? Why was it taken? And most important, how do they get it back? That is all authorities want to know now. And they believe this man holds the key. That's coming up. Based on the true story, Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traders. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere. Thanksgiving.
We just saw a step-by-step -step account of the art heist of the century. So what's happened in the more than 25 years since? Once again, Erin Moriarty with Chapter 2. How does half a billion dollars worth of art simply vanish? The mystery of the Gardner Museum heist has tantalized investigators for so long, it has even etched itself into pop culture. So, Burns, do you want to explain how this miracle of measure and harmony got into your collection? Well, I... <laughs> but as FBI Special Agent Jeff Kelly knows all too well, life doesn't always imitate, well, the Simpsons. The people that took these paintings don't have them hidden in some private art gallery, sitting back and, and just reveling in their beauty. These paintings are most likely up in an attic somewhere or in a basement, not being viewed by anyone. Investigators have long believed that members of organized crime pulled off the heist. The idea was to either hold the art for ransom or trade it for reduced prison sentences. So over the years, the FBI and the Boston Police Department scoured the criminal underground but came up with nothing. I would say in the last, the last 10 years, I've probably had at least a dozen or so moments where when we've really looked at each other like, this, this one's it, this is it, and they haven't, they haven't panned out. These need to be holding the spot for the works to come back. The most dramatic close call, says museum director Ann Holly, happened in the summer of 1997. I first found out by reading it in the Boston Herald. <laughs> in bold headlines, the Boston Herald announced that one of its investigative reporters had gotten a glimpse of the missing Rembrandt seascape, signature and all. Well, it was very exciting to think that this might be the beginning of the end and lead to the return of the paintings. Like something out of a crime thriller, Tom Mashberg was taken in the dead of night to a warehouse in Brooklyn, New York, by an antiques dealer with a criminal past, William Youngworth, who then removed a painting out of a large tube. It was pulled out and kind of unfurled, and I was not able to touch it or really get close to it, but I was able to look at it under the beam of a flashlight. What I looked at appeared to me to be an aged painting with a lot of the earmarks of an authentic 17th century work of art. Youngworth, who was facing unrelated theft charges, said he'd turn over the Rembrandt and other art to authorities in exchange for immunity. There was just one hitch. The paintings are thick. They're not like fabric. They've been relined over the years. Museum security chief Anthony Amore says the stolen Rembrandt couldn't have been rolled. So it would like crack the paint? Or? Yeah, well, imagine trying to roll cardboard, what happens when you give it that little turn, you see it's, this isn't going to roll. So to bolster Youngworth's claim that he had access to the missing art, Mashberg was given paint chips as proof. And when I looked at them, I thought, oh, like, these are cigarette ashes. What is this? This is ridiculous. No one's ever going to get any information out of this. But the chips were analyzed. And here's where the story takes another dramatic turn. They weren't from the Rembrandt, but they may have come from a Vermeer. What's more, the chips happen to be the same color, known as Red Lake, as the blanket in the stolen painting, The Concert. Wouldn't that indicate that that had to come from 
the Vermeer at the Gardner? I, oh, I would definitely. I'm not dis- disputing that. Yeah. But the analysis took time, and by then, Youngworth had stopped cooperating. In 2002, when Jeff Kelly took over the investigation, he tried to pressure Youngworth into talking. I can't tell you what he knows or what he does not know. I can just tell you that the paint chips appear to have been from a Vermeer, and despite the offers of immunity and the reward, the painting has not been recovered. Youngworth, now 56 years old and still selling antiques in Massachusetts, refused to talk with us. And the FBI seems to have shifted its focus. For the first time, we can say with a high degree of confidence, we've determined that in the years since the theft, the art was transported to Connecticut and to the Philadelphia area. In March 2013, investigators revealed new details. They believe the original thieves are dead, but what they didn't share then was the name of the man they're convinced can lead them to the art. Robert Gentile. I believe that he knows either where some of the artwork is, or could point us in the right direction. Gentile, seventy-nine years old and ailing, was reputedly a member of the Philadelphia La Cosa Nostra. On federal wiretaps, he is reportedly heard talking about the art, and a search of his Connecticut home in May 2012 uncovered a list of the missing pieces and their market values. I certainly concede that 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 list is 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 damning. But Ryan McGuigan, Gentile's lawyer, says investigators are wrong. He says his client never had the art, but may have tried to con art collectors into thinking he did. It is a quote that he said many many times. I got caught in my own trap. When he says that, what does he mean by that? That he thought to himself that he could fake people out into getting some money. Gentile is in federal custody, facing a long prison term on an unrelated gun charge. The art could be his get-out-of-jail-free card, not to mention the five million dollar reward he would be eligible to collect. I tell him time and time again, "Is there anything that you're not telling me, Bobby? Because you know, if there is, you'll be really comfortable in Aruba." And he said, "I got nothing, kid." And that is where the trail goes cold. It's been over 25 years. So does that mean this was the perfect crime?、Uh, no, this was the antithesis of the perfect crime. Well, it's still gone. And nobody got any money off of these paintings. And that's really the the perfect crime means that you get away with it, and you profit from the crime. And I don't believe that anybody has profited at all from this crime. But many have been hurt by it. What do you personally miss the most? Well, you know, I this I appreciate, but I loved the Vermeer. Anne Holly still desperately hopes that someone will call the museum with information, so she can see the priceless works back on museum walls before she retires at the end of the year. Do you fear that the concert will never? Be seen、oh, I, again. I can't go there. I because I, I really think these works are out there, and that somehow, if we can just appeal to whomever is holding them, that we can get them back. Oh, shut up! Still to come. I'm sorry that I'm not nice anymore. Brie Larson, could she win the Oscar? 
It's a question for every parent following news of an act of violence. What, if anything, to tell the children? Here's Steve Hartman's answer. So far, my two boys, seven-year-old George and five-year-old Emmett, have grown up inside a protective bubble of my creation. So far, my wife and I have shielded them from the terror attacks and just about every other bit of bad news on the planet. The goal was to keep them as carefree as possible, as long as possible. But recently, I started wondering if that was the right approach. So to find out what's best for my kids, I consulted some experts. My kids. A lot of parents are wondering if they should tell their kids when bad things happen in the world. It might be really interesting to some kids. Would you want to know? Mm. Nah, not really. Seems there is a bit of ostrich in all of us. But I learned the biggest bird brains are parents like me, who think we can just gloss over terror with a white lie. You guys know that nothing could ever happen to you, right? It could, but it's really bad, and, I'm, and I can never get you to understand that. Because it's really unlikely, but it still has a chance. Mm -hmm. What do you say to that? Other than, you're right. Yeah. I went on to tell them a little bit about the recent attacks. Did they die? Yeah. But in the end, my kids didn't need to talk as much as I needed to listen. They told me in the future I should be more honest about world events, but only the ones that really matter. Like if there's a war and, our, and the United States lost the war? I really want to know about that. And that's how we left it. Yertle the turtle. We finished the night with a book I always turn to after weeks like this one. I'm ruler. Dr. Seuss's allegory about the rise and fall of Hitler. Silence. I read it mostly for myself as a reminder that evil may take up a page or two, but it never gets the last one. And the turtles, of course, all the turtles are free as turtles and maybe all creatures should be the end. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It happened this past week. Color coordinates for the year 2016. The Pantone Company the fashion industry's arbiter of color, announced that for the first time, there will actually be two colors of the year. Based on its poll of designers and manufacturers, Pantone says the 2016 colors will be pink and baby blue. More precisely, the colors will be Pantone shade number 131520, now to be known as rose quartz, and 153919, henceforth to be called serenity. Now that Pantone has given these two shades its blessing, it's expected that many of next year's clothes, household furnishings, and appliances will be decked out in one of those two shades. Get used to it. And Brie, right this way, honey. A visit with actress Brie Larson, next. He's too nice. He's not too nice. Yes, he is. He's too nice for me. You know it. No, I, no, he's the perfect amount of nice that you deserve. She was Amy Schumer's sister in the recent movie Trainwreck. Introducing Brie Larson, who's enjoying rave reviews for her current film, Room. Here's Tracy Smith. You've been called the it girl. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that phrase? What is it? 
I guess it means the girl of the moment. But what is it? <laughs> there is no it. And who was it before it? And when does it go away? When did I get it? Who's going to take it? It's so weird. I think it's a funny, really funny term. I'm just a person. <laughs> Not anything. And three, right this way, honey. She may not like the label, but whatever in the world it really is, Brie Larson has it to burn. It's normal. This past summer, she held her own with Amy Schumer. You don't want best sex that you've ever had, guy. You don't want to be with that guy. Best sex that you've ever had, guy, is in jail. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I've been thinking about maybe reaching out to him. <laughs> Stop. But this is what all the buzz is about. I'm scared. I know. In the movie Room, Larson is a young woman kidnapped by a deranged rapist and held prisoner for years in a tiny shed. Her son, Jack, was born in captivity and has a hard time getting his five-year-old mind around an outside world he's never set foot in. I was a little girl named Joy. Nah. And I lived in a house with my mom and my dad. You would call them grandma and grandpa. What house? A house. It was in the world. And there was a backyard, and we had a hammock. And we would swing in the hammock, and we would eat ice cream. A TV house? No, Jack, a real house, not TV. Are you even listening to me? How did you prepare for this movie? Went on a very small, rigid diet. Started working out with a trainer in order to wear out my body and gain muscle. I had to stay out of the sun for like three months before we started shooting. And every day I just felt like I was getting closer and closer. What do you mean, getting closer and closer to, to, to her? To her? Yeah. She got close, all right. You're five now. You're five and you're old enough to understand what the world is. You have to understand. You have to understand. We can't keep living like this. You need to help me. On the strength of this performance, Brie Larson is more than just the it girl of the moment. She's a legitimate contender. There's been a lot of Oscar buzz. Do you allow yourself to think about that? No. Mm -mm. I can't. It's just not even something that your brain can wrap itself around. No? No. It's like... I think I would be, you know, standing in the shower thinking about, ooh, here's what I might say. Here's but isn't it sort of like like planning your fantasy wedding when you don't even have a boyfriend? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's It's a little so... premature, you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think you can think about it when you have the nomination. You go, wow, I'm going to be there. I wonder what it'll be like. But you can't imagine something that hasn't existed yet. And I feel like that's dangerous. That's dangerous magical thinking. But magical thinking might be what got her here. Even as a kid in Sacramento, California, Brie Larson saw acting as her destiny. When I was seven, I had been very vocal about wanting to be an actor, and my mom decided that we would try it out for a couple weeks and, and come to LA from Sacramento. Bree, her mother, and sister found a place near Hollywood. They were chasing a dream. But for mom, there was more to it than that. Oh, the three of us would all sleep in the same bed, and I remembered waking up to my mom having these real guttural, sort of choking sob, but she was covering her mouth so that we couldn't hear her. And 
it's not until now that I've been able to put all the pieces together and, and realize that right before we were going to make this trip out to Los Angeles, my father had asked for a divorce. And so this was a much bigger move than my mother had anticipated and a much bigger move than I and my sister knew about at all. And Brie right here? Still, Brie managed to find work. By the time she was 12, she'd been in a series of TV shows. She chatted up the press at premieres. You know, I'm just, I'm really into time travel and that kind of stuff, so I'm really excited to see what they did with it. And showed up in a few movies, like 2004's 13 Going on 30. That's her on the right. I'm very excited. Eventually, the roles got bigger. I was wondering if you, uh... Yes. I would love to go to prom with you. But for every part Brie Larson won, there were a hundred more she lost. Right there. You said you're very competitive serious. about this stuff, right? Competitive with myself. Brie's always been one of those artsy types and once even considered a career in graphic design. So at her suggestion, we went to Color Me Mine in Los Angeles, where she painted a mug as carefully as she creates her characters. Is this gonna be the best mug that Brie has ever made? Is this the best I can do? Could I have done better? She says for years, whenever she auditioned, directors would always find flaws. It all felt very personal. Well, and they would say stuff that sounds awfully personal, right? Yeah, when someone says, uh, your eyes aren't blue, or not the right tone, it's really hard to see that as something that's that's not personal. I'm so tired. You don't, At 26, don't it still hurts. At 18, it was devastating. No, you're, you're too tall. No, you were not pretty enough. No, you were too pretty. It's all of these no's and it becomes very confusing, especially when you're growing into your womanhood to constantly be told what you're not. And it always felt like such a blow to me. It was like, oh yeah, I don't have blue eyes. And then you'd cry all night thinking, oh, if only I had blue eyes, my life would be different, you know? Action! But after what seemed like the millionth rejection, she had an epiphany. I remember at 18 finally hitting this point where I went, I don't have blue eyes. I have brown eyes. I am myself. And if you don't want to take it, that's okay. But I don't need you to. She kept at it, and now there are plenty of takers. Brie Larson may not know or care what being the it girl really means, but she does know how to appreciate it. So you had to get rejected to get to where you are now. I think it's always the moments that are the trials that end up making you become the hero in the end. You're not a hero unless you've gone through the trials, and it makes these moments so much sweeter, so much better. I don't believe in deserved, but I might believe in earned. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.